Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 4 through 10. First epistle of the Apostle John, chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Hear the word of God. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Well, having preached on the subject of the doctrines of grace, historically known as the five points of Calvinism, we've been considering why the doctrines of grace matter. How do these truths affect us? What practical effect do they have on our lives and upon the church? We began by considering how the doctrines of grace affect worship. The doctrines of grace ignite humble, reverential, joyful worship to God and a fervent pursuit of the glory of God in one's life. And so we considered how the doctrines of grace stir us up to worship. Then we saw how the doctrines of grace affects one's worldview, how we understand the world that we live in. The doctrines of grace explain why God made the world, what's wrong with the world, what the hope is for the world in Christ, in the gospel, and what the end of all things is to the praise of the glory of his grace for all eternity. And then we saw how the doctrines of grace affect evangelism and missions, The doctrines of grace we saw stir us up to obey the mandate to preach the gospel because we understand the glory of God and the sovereignty of God. We know that it is about the glory of God and the salvation of sinners and that he is bringing that about. He is saving his elect. And so we're stirred up to obedience to preach the gospel. We saw that the doctrines of grace keep us faithful to the message Because we have a clear understanding of the gospel of God, good news to sinners. We don't change the message. And we understand the grace of God, that salvation is by grace alone. And so we proclaim that message. And the doctrines of grace keep us faithful to that message. We saw that the doctrines of grace call us to trust the biblical means of evangelism. Because we understand the powerful work of God in regeneration. We don't trust man's methods and man's means, but the God-ordained means. He does a work, how? Through the word of God. It is through the general call, the proclamation of the gospel, that he makes spiritually dead sinners alive. And so we saw how the doctrines of grace affect 
missions and evangelism. Today, we want to consider how the doctrines of grace affect sanctification. When a person is saved by God's grace, the relationship of that now saved, justified sinner with sin changes. There's a change of our relationship to sin. God's work of salvation not only sets the believer free from the penalty of sin, that's justification, and one day the very presence of sin, that's glorification, but God also sets the believer free from the power of sin so that the believer, by the grace of God, grows in sanctification, grows in holiness. God is at work in the lives of justified believers to make them holy in their practice. And understanding the doctrines of grace is essential for understanding the doctrine of progressive sanctification. Now, before we consider more specifically, or specifically 1 John 3, 4 to 10, I need to do something that I have done many times before, but maybe some of you weren't here when I've done that. Maybe some of you... Young people were here, but you didn't have ears to hear or didn't understand. And as you're hearing the word of God preached, you're putting things together. Or even for us adults, that happens. So it's important for me to lay this foundation again before we get into the specifics of 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10, to see how the doctrines of grace affects our sanctification. We need to understand again how the Bible speaks of our salvation, the whole of our salvation, So let me just summarize this again. The Bible speaks of our salvation in three tenses, we might say. Past, present, and future. There is salvation in the past tense. There's salvation in the present tense. And there is salvation in the future tense. Now, when we speak of salvation for us as believers today in the past tense, what we mean is this. We have been saved. Ephesians 2.8, you're very familiar with it. For by grace you, past tense, have been saved by faith. Okay? It's not of yourselves through faith. It is the gift of God. Now, what is it in our salvation that has already occurred, that is already complete? Well, we use the word justification. Therefore, Romans 5 verse 1, having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That part of our salvation in the past, justified, past tense, having been justified. Or 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, you were, past tense, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Titus 3 verse 5, he saved us, past tense. In what sense? He goes on to say, so that being justified in the past, by his grace. So there is the past tense, we say, of our salvation as believers. It's already occurred. We have been justified. Now, justification is the legal, judicial act of God whereby he instantaneously pardons, forgives a person of all his sins and declares him to be righteous. Only on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ to his account. And that by grace and grace alone, not on the basis of works. So justification, that part of our salvation 
that's already occurred for us as believers is the declarative act of God whereby he credits or imputes the righteousness of Christ to the believing sinner and counts or reckons the believer as righteous. So in this sense, we've already been made holy. We've been declared holy. The word holy, the family of words in the New Testament, the Greek words, is the word hagias. It has to do with being holy. The word saint comes from this word. Now, saint in English doesn't sound like hagias or holy, our translation of that, because our word saint comes from the Latin word sanctus. But nonetheless, it's referring to the same thing. We are holy ones. Now, we know we're not holy in our practice. We certainly aren't perfectly holy. But we have been declared holy. We have been declared righteous because God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to our account. So the Bible teaches about holiness. God is holy. I am unholy. I cannot be holy myself. And therefore, a holy God sets his holy wrath on unholy sinners. But because of his great love and mercy, Jesus sent, or God sent his son, the Holy One. The Holy One lived a holy life, a sinless life. And he died a propitiatory death, bearing the wrath that our sins deserve. And those who place their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ are declared holy because the holiness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, is credited to their account. So again, this is what God has done in salvation for us as believers. We have been justified. It is a legal act of God. Those who are guilty in the holy tribunal of God are declared to be righteous and not guilty. It is a declarative act. And the word declared is important. I'm not actually completely holy in my practice. I'm a, st a sinner still. But he declares me to be righteous. God, in the words of Romans 4 verse 5, justifies, declares righteous the ungodly. And so we are just in the sight of God. We're righteous in the sight of God because we're clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. So in that sense, we have been saved. We have been justified. So that part of our salvation is past tense. Thus, we are reconciled to God. Our sins are forgiven. We've been rescued from the wrath to come. We have eternal life. In this way, we have been saved. Now, when you look in the book of 1 John, for example, and you say, where would I go to find things that refer to or verses that refer to our justification, well, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, because we will, we're sinners still, we have an advocate with the Father. We have one who pleads for us. And who is that? Jesus Christ, and how is he described? The righteous, the righteous one. And so he is the propitiation for our sins. So there you have the doctrine of justification. I'm a sinner still, 
but I have an advocate, one before the throne of God who pleads my case. Yes, he's a sinner, but I shed my blood for him. I died a propitiatory sacrifice. I bore the wrath his sins deserve. His sin was credited to my account on the cross, and I am the righteous one, and I have imputed to him my righteousness. And so you find that here in 1 John and in other places as well. Your sins have been forgiven He says of these justified sinners in 1 John 2, verse 12. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 7. Now, that's the past aspect of our salvation. It's already completed. Now, let me skip the present aspect for now and have us consider the future aspect of our salvation. There is salvation that is yet to come. There is salvation in the future tense, not only for us, but for all, and even for those who are already gone to heaven. The completion of salvation is not yet here. Now, where do we get that from Scripture? Places like Romans 13, verse 11, it says salvation, it speaks of a salvation ready to be revealed in the, excuse me, I get the wrong verse, that's 1 Peter 1, 5, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. So there is a a time where salvation will be made manifest and revealed. But Romans 13, 11 says salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Now, if you read that, you say, well, I thought I was already saved. You have been saved. And now it's saying salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It's talking about the consummation of our salvation. We call that glorification. We will be saved. Glorification is the final act of God and the application of redemption to his people, whereby God resurrects the bodies of believers, reunites them with their souls, thereby giving believers resurrected bodies in the likeness of the resurrected body of Jesus Christ with no more capacity to sin, sin, but made free to do only that which is good and holy. Now, we know we're not there yet. These are not resurrected bodies, right? Those who have died, their bodies have decayed. They're still in the grave. The last day is not here. That day of glorification and resurrection is not here. And we still have remaining corruption. But there is a day that we call glorification in which our bodies will be glorified. Romans 8.23 calls it the redemption of our bodies. And when that occurs, it will be the consummation of our salvation. And every day that passes... That salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And you should long for that day. Paul in Romans 8 speaks of longing for and groaning, groaning for the redemption of his body, for the consummation of salvation. And that will happen again on the last day when Jesus comes. It will be or will usher in the eternal state when Jesus comes. The new heavens, the new earth in which there will be no more sin, And no more capacity to sin for believers. Now, where do you find that in 1 John? Glorification. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. So that's not yet occurred. When he appears, not talking about his first coming, but his second coming, we will be made like him and there will be no more sin. 
So we have been saved, we have been justified. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed, the consummation of our salvation. And listen, we don't want to belittle that. That's coming. God is going to save us in that sense and remove the very presence of sin. But there's another way that God, in his word, speaks of our salvation. It's not salvation in the past tense, justification, or the future tense, glorification, but salvation in the present tense. We call that sanctification. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, says that we grow in respect to salvation. And there's a way in which we grow in respect to our salvation. Now, we don't grow in respect to justification. That's an instantaneous declarative act of God. It's already occurred. It's finished. We don't grow in justification. It is an instantaneous act of God in glorification when he returns in the resurrection and removal of sin. But we grow in respect to salvation in the present tense. In what sense is our salvation now occurring? Well, God calls those who are saints, who've been justified, declared righteous, to now live like it, to live holy lives. It is God's will that those who are declared holy in their position in Jesus Christ, their standing in Christ, now practice holiness. Those who are sanctified in Christ positionally, we might say, we are holy because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ are now to be sanctified practically. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, your sanctification. So it is presently now the will of God that those who have been justified and one day will be glorified are now being sanctified. And we call this practical holiness or progressive sanctification because we are progressively being made more and more into the image of Christ. Now, we're never to confuse justification and sanctification. Justification is the legal act of God whereby he declares you righteous. Sanctification is the work of God whereby the believers progressively conform more and more into the image of Christ. Justification, technically speaking, doesn't change the character of the sinner. Justified sinners are sinners still. A justified person is changed, but that's not part of justification. Justification is based on what Christ did for you. Sanctification is what Christ and the Spirit does in you. So justification technically doesn't change the character of the person. It's not transformative. It's a declarative act of God. But sanctification is transformative. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.12. And so God is at work. It's not as though you're justified and then there's nothing until glorification. God is at work. God was at work in justification. God will do a mighty work in glorification. And in between, God is doing a mighty work we call sanctification the scriptures call it sanctification. Now, where do you find that in 1 John? Well, everywhere. <laughs> but right off in chapter 1, 
in verses 6 and 7, he speaks of those who walk in darkness and those who walk in light. So he speaks of your walk, your life. And there are those who walk in darkness and there are those who walk in the light. I just read in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. He's talking about present tense right now in your life. Part of his goal in writing these things is that you may grow in holiness, that you might not sin, but live holy lives. He says in 1 John 2, 6, the one who says he abides in him ought to, what? Walk, live in the same manner as he walked. And in 1 John 5, 18, he says, we know that no one born of God sins. So he's talking about the present tense. So there's sanctification throughout 1 John as well. So we see all three parts of our salvation in 1 John. Justification, past, the instantaneous work of God, when the sinner born again is granted gift, the gift of faith. There's glorification, future, an instantaneous work of God. But there is now, in the present, this work of God in sanctification. It is progressive. We're being conformed to the image of God. So our salvation, one thing I always tell believers you need to think of, if you're ever just thinking of salvation in one part and not all three, the whole, then you're going to fall into some error in some way. Our salvation is not only justification, as glorious as that is. Our salvation is not only glorification, as glorious as that will be. Our salvation also includes the present sanctification, that work of God currently in the life of justified believers who will be glorified. So we have been saved. The way we say it is from the penalty of sin, justification, we will be saved from the presence of sin in the future, but now we are saved from the power of sin. For whatever reason, I find that most Christians like to focus on justification or glorification, sometimes to the neglect of sanctification. They want to praise God for his work of justification and look forward to that day in which he would be marveled, out in, marveled at by his saints in glorification and somehow diminish the work of God in sanctification. And when we do so, we're not giving praise to God for the glory of his grace in salvation. All three don't ever neglect glory in God's grace in all three. Now, understanding the doctrines of grace shows us that the God who saves from the penalty of sin and one day the very presence of sin is also saving us from the power of sin, the dominion of sin. In fact, he has done so. But he is then bearing that out in practice in our lives. The doctrines of grace have implications for what happens between justification and glorification, namely our sanctification. Our sanctification can't rightly be understood unless we understand total depravity that I preached on, limited atonement, the doctrine of the atonement, the perseverance of the saints. All these doctrines of grace have an impact on our understanding of progressive sanctification. And I submit to you that understanding the doctrines of grace is essential 
for understanding the doctrine of progressive sanctification. Now, our text, 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10, will aid us, I think, in seeing this. This isn't a complete exposition of all these verses, but it will help us to see how understanding the doctrines of grace helps us then understand our sanctification. So as we look at these verses, four points, four points to help us navigate. First of all, the definition of sin. Secondly, the devil and sin. Thirdly, the dominion of sin, and we can add the devil because we'll see the relationship of the two, the dominion of sin and the devil. And then finally, the defeat of sin and the devil. So the definition of sin, the devil and sin, the dominion of sin and the devil, and the defeat of sin and the devil. Look in 1 John 3, verse 4, and we see there a definition of sin. As John here purposes to define it, he says it this way, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So he gives us a type of a definition of sin, but it's somewhat unique. Sin is lawlessness. When you look throughout the scriptures, you don't find in other places sin described and defined in this way. Now, if you have the King James Version, it says, for sin is the transgression of the law. And it is true that sin is the transgressing of God's law. So when you break a commandment of God, that is a definition of sin. What is sin? It is the transgressing of God's law. But what John is saying is actually more than that. Sin is lawlessness. The Greek word for lawlessness is anomia. It comes from namas, law, with the uh, alpha primitive, without law. But it doesn't mean you're without law. It means you're living as a lawless person. So sin is transgressing the law of God. But what is in mind here is more than just an act of breaking the law of God, as serious as that is. The Apostle John is defining sin as a state or condition, not just an act. Here he describes a person who defies God and defies God's moral law. When he says, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness, he is describing a heart and a life that has hatred and disdain for God and his moral law. What he is describing here as lawlessness is the assertion of the sinner's will against and in defiance to God himself. It is the rebellion against God that characterizes those who have not been born of God. In the words of Psalm 12, verse 4, it describes this lawlessness, this defiance in this way. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? We are our own Lord. This is a defiance against God. This is a lawlessness. Is it any wonder that, by the way, the man of lawlessness described in 2 Thessalonians, verse 4, is described this way. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He's called the man of lawlessness because he defies God 
He defies the moral law of God. And that's what sin is. It's defying the law of God. This is the essence of sin. I will not have God as Lord over me. I am my own Lord. And this lawlessness is a state of rebellion against God. So the Apostle John says that a person who practices sin also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. So I want you to understand, it's important for you to interpret the rest of the verses by that definition. This state, this condition of lawlessness, defiance against God, defiance against God himself and his moral law. So we see the definition of sin given by the apostle here in verse 4. But notice that the apostle John draws a parallel between this practicing of sin, this lawlessness, with the devil himself. To be in this state of lawlessness is to be like the devil. So consider, secondly, the devil and sin. Look in verse 8. He says, the one who practices sin, now that sounds like what he said in verse 4. He said there, he said, also practices lawlessness. But here he says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil is sin from the beginning. So now he's saying sin is lawlessness. And sin and practicing sin is of the devil. And the one who does it is of the devil because that's the devil's nature. That's the sphere in which he lives, defiance against God. Now, sin is always associated with the devil, and the devil would sin. Sin is lawlessness and rebellion against God, and the devil is the epitome of lawlessness and rebellion against God. He is the enemy of God. He is the liar, the father of all lies, the deceiver, the tempter, the wicked one, the evil one. He's described in so many ways that lets us know of his lawless rebellious, God-defiant nature. And here in verse 8, John says the devil has sinned from the beginning. From the beginning. He committed the first sin prior to what we see in the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. The devil sinned from the beginning. That doesn't mean he was eternally a sinner. There was a time, a point in which he fell as well. He sinned against God. So the devil has sinned from the beginning. And he tempted Adam and Eve in the beginning. And he continues to tempt others to sin. So the devil has sinned from the beginning and he continues to sin until this day. Jesus said that in John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning speaking of the devil, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The very nature of the devil is nothing but wickedness. Therefore, whenever he speaks, he lies, he deceives. And even when he technically speaks the truth, it's from the motive to deceive in some way. For the devil is the father of lies and his motives are always evil. Now, may I remind us all that sin may be enticing, but when we associate with sin, when we commit sin, there's a sense in which we associate with the one who has sinned from the beginning. But what John is saying here is to be in this state of lawlessness, of practicing sin, 
is to be also of the devil, he says. Of the devil. So we see his definition of sin. Then we see his association of sin with the devil. But thirdly, we see in this passage the dominion of sin in the devil. When he says the one who practices sin is of the devil, we see here something of the sphere, the state of the sinner, the dominion of sin, the dominion of Satan, of which the unregenerate, unsaved sinner is a part. So the one who practices sin is practicing this lawlessness, this defiance against God. I will not have him as Lord over me. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. That means you're, you're like him. And you're under his sway. In verse 10, he will describe them as children of the devil. So the practice sin is to be like the one who sinned from the beginning. It is to be under the devil's sway. It is to be in his domain. Now, John contrasts this throughout the book in one way or another. He speaks, as I made reference earlier, to those who walk in darkness and those who walk in the light. And there's a, a stark contrast there. There are those who are under the domain of darkness and those who are in the domain, we might say, of light. The domain of darkness is to be of the devil. To be of the domain of light is to be under the domain and lordship of God. There are those who would deny their sin, and there are those who confess their sin. There are those who would say, we have not sinned, and there's no sin in us. When you look at 1 John 1, verses 8 and 10. But in the middle of that, there are those who are confessing their sins, and you see this contrast. There's a contrast in John between love and hate. When you go through the book of 1 John, there are those who love the world and the things of the world. There are those who love the Father. There are those who hate their brothers who hate others and then because we're born of God and God is love and we have a nature now that has been changed by the work of God and regeneration we're to love our brothers and so John throughout is describing those who are under the dominion of sin whose lives are characterized by practicing sin which is lawlessness they're of the devil and those who are now born of the Spirit of God, who know God through Christ savingly, who are of the light, who confess their sin, who love righteousness, who love the Father, and who love the brethren. In chapter 3 that we're looking at in verse 10, he makes this contrast. Of, by this we the children of God on the one hand and the children of, devil, of the devil on the other hand are obvious. It's manifest. It's, it's made clear by how they live their lives as to who they belong to. So you know whether a person is of the devil or a child of the, the devil by how he walks, who and what he loves, and whether he practices sin or righteousness. How is that? Well, those in the, dom the domain of darkness, the domain of sin, and the devil are enslaved to such things. It is a state of lawlessness that they are in. And they are of the devil, like the devil and under his sway. So 
you understand that what John is laying out here. There's a clear delineation between children of God and children of the devil. Those who practice sin and therefore are lawless and those who practice righteousness and show that they are born of God. Now, what does this have to do with the doctrines of grace? Well, I've got more notes here than I can share with you. (laughs) But let me ask you this question. Maybe this would help. Are believers totally depraved? Now, you've got to go back to the doctrine of total depravity and the definition of total depravity. Are believers totally depraved, as defined by the doctrine of total depravity? The answer is, or the answer to the question, are believers totally depraved, is no, as defined by the doctrine of total depravity. Now, let me tell you what I did not say. I did not say believers are not depraved. We are depraved. What is depraved? Wicked, sinful. We are still sinners. We are still depraved. Every part of our being has still been affected by sin. We still have remaining corruption. But are we totally depraved in the sense that we are unable to obey the moral law of God? No, we can obey the moral law of God. We have the ability to obey the moral law of God. We are not in the domain of darkness. We are not of the devil any longer. We have been set free from the power of sin. How do I know that? I've come to faith in Christ. Remember the doctrine of total depravity is that all are born in sin. That's true of us as well. And that sin has affected every part of our being, our mind, our affections, our wills. That is still true of us as well. So as to not be able to come to faith in Christ, we're unwilling and unable. That's not true of us anymore. Why? Because of the doctrine of irresistible grace, effectual calling, regeneration, being born again, being made alive in Christ. We are radically changed. We're new creatures in Christ. I am no longer in the domain of darkness by the grace of God. I have been transferred transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So that I am able, by the grace of God, to not be lawless. I'm not in that state of spiritual death. I'm in a state of spiritual life. I'm not in a state of lawlessness. I'm in a state of love for God, seeking the glory of God. Now, perfectly, no, that's glorification. So don't, don't hear Any doctrine of sanctification that says that you're entirely sanctified. Perfectionism. No. There will be a day of glorification where there will be no more sin. So there's remaining corruption. We are sinners still. But we are transformed sinners by the grace of God. Now, by the grace of God is not a throwaway phrase there. The same grace that justifies, the same grace that will glorify, is the same grace that is now justifying the believer and that has set him free from the domain of darkness so that he's not of the devil and his life is not characterized by lawlessness. How do I know that? Well, that's the fourth point. The defeat of sin and the devil. 
Sin is lawlessness. The devil sinned from the beginning. And in that state of lawlessness, I am of the devil. And I'm under the domain of darkness, enslaved to sin. But enter the conqueror, the rescuer, the savior. Verse 5, you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. Verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. I don't know how much you've really considered verses like that. That Jesus, the Son of God, appeared. Past tense, not future. Not he will appear to destroy the works of the devil. Now listen, he will That's the final demise of Satan and sin. When he will be the devil once and for all time dealt with and judged. And there will be no more sin. Okay, so there is that. But here it speaks of when he came and appeared the first time, he destroyed the works of the devil. So enter the conqueror, the rescuer, the one who now saves me from that domain of darkness. In verse 4, it's spoken of this way. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So here we see the son's work. The work of taking away sins. What is that? Surely justification. Propitiation. Dealing with the penalty of sin by his righteous life and his substitutionary death. He came to take away sin. But brethren, it's more than that. It's more than that. In Romans 6, if you've been united with Christ, if you have union with Christ, if you have placed your faith in him, and you've been baptized into Christ, talking about that spiritual union with Christ, then you've been baptized and identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And what does it say in Romans 6? It says, so that you are no longer slaves of sin. So here's the good news. And I've said this this way before. Justification is wonderful. And we cannot express how glorious that truth is. And glorification is, is wonderful. We cannot express how glorious it is. But if you were to ignore the doctrine of sanctification, that we have been rescued from the power of sin so that although i'm justified i am just as i was enslaved to sin of the devil spiritually dead you'd say you can't say that and say you're justified no because that's not reality what god is doing when christ came to take away sin yes that's justification but i tell you it's more than that He rescues from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Robert S. Candlish, a Scottish pastor of the 19th century, said this. Of this, he came to take away sin. He appeared to take away sin. He was manifested to take away our sins, root and branch. The very completeness of that work of atonement by which he takes them away in respect of the condemnation and punishment which, as transgressions of the law, they bind upon us, secures also his completely taking them away in respect of the carnal mind in us, 
of whose enmity against God and insubordination to his law, they are the fruits. In other words, he's saying you're not still in the sphere of lawlessness. His purging our conscience from the guilt of them, that is sin, is the very means of his purging our hearts from the pollution of them. Their power to condemn us, he has taken away, and so he takes away also their power to rule over us. They can never again subject us to the law's curse, and therefore they can never again provoke us in us, in us resistance or resentment to the law's authority. What he is saying is this. When you read that the Son of God appeared to take away sin, you shouldn't just think of the penalty of sin. You should think in this way, that now he has so worked and you have been made alive and regenerated so as to believe on Christ so that you would be justified by faith. That now the commandment of God is not a burden to you but a delight. You don't live in lawlessness but love to God and delight and love for his commandments. There's no hatred of the law of God. There's love for the law of God. He goes on to say, nor is this all. In virtue of his being manifested to take away our sins, we receive the Holy Ghost. The obstacle which our sin, as a breach of the law, interposed to his being graciously present with us and in us is taken away. The divine spirit dwells and works in us, causing us to love the law, which is now magnified, not in our destruction, but in our salvation, not in our death, but in our life and to hate the thought of transgressing it anymore. A new nature, a new heart, a new spirit as respects the law of God and God the lawgiver. A new character as well as a new state is the result of Christ being manifested to take away our sins. We know that personally, practically, experimentally, and our knowledge of it is what enables us to as well, excuse me, is what our knowledge of it is what enables as well as moves us to purify ourselves even as Christ is pure. Now, you say, aren't you reading too much in the verse 4? No, not when you get down to verse 8. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. There are those who are under the domain of darkness, dead in their trespasses and sins. They are of the devil. Children of the devil is described because to be lawless is to be of the devil. You're under his power. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Here's the paradox, by the way. Imagine this, a baby born in a manger. And that baby was a destroyer, a conqueror. That baby in the manger came to defeat a mighty foe. You wonder why the evil one sought to kill this baby. You wonder why the evil one came to tempt him in the wilderness. You wonder why the evil one would cry out and his minions, demons, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? He came head on to destroy the works of the devil. Sometimes it's just a, a side thought. People ask, why do we see so much of this demonic activity in the Gospels, but we don't seem to see it today? 
and you have the casting out of demons by Jesus and all these things that are going on. That was a unique, unique time. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And he came and he confronted the devil head on. The devil tempted him, but he has no root in him. He was without sin. Be gone, Satan, away from me. And the, the tempter would come. And he would be confronted with those possessed by demons. And he would say, be gone. And in a moment, he would cast them out. It was a picture. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He would send them out to preach the gospel. And in the salvation of sinners, those who would believe, he, Satan was falling from heaven, as it says. He calls sinners out of the, the domain of darkness. He sets the captives free. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. But not only the Son's work, but the Spirit's work. Look in verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. When you read the words born of God, you should hear born of the Spirit. You should hear the words of Jesus in John 3. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You must be born of the Spirit. This is the work of regeneration, being born again, being made alive in Christ. This is what we talked about, irresistible grace, effectual calling, that work of God at his appointed time when his elect hear the gospel that he chooses to make them alive. And he breaks the chains of death and sin and of the devil. And he sets the captive free. And the spirit who makes that sinner alive and grants him faith in Christ and justifies him indwells him so that that one is no longer characterized by lawlessness. He now is under the domain or kingdom, excuse me, of his beloved son. This is a mighty work. When that takes place, and listen, this is what is taking place in the life of the believer. And here's how you should think about your sanctification. That is the son of God and the spirit of God destroying the works of the devil. Now, again, you may not think of it this way, but I think it's because in many cases we don't really understand and have not really dwelled on and studied the way we should in all of its fullness in the scriptures what this work of God and sanctification is to the praise of the glory of his grace. When you were born again, it was a radical change from death to life, from disobedience to obedience from hatred of the law of God, for love to the commandments of God, from death to life, from being of the devil to of God, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And what takes place? There is, in one sense, in that work, a change of character. Now, we said it's progressive sanctification, but there is immediately in that work of regeneration a change of disposition toward God, his law, his word. Immediately. How do I know that? Well, I know it a lot of ways, but let me give you an example. The thief on the cross that was saved. Two thieves on the cross. Both were hurling insults as well at the Savior. But then as they see 
Jesus die on the cross, one confesses his sin and believes on Christ. And then he says to the other thief that he just previously joined in with hurling abuse at Christ, save us, if you save yourself, save us. And he's insulting Christ to, we deserve this punishment. But this man does not. There's immediate change. And what you see, even in his disposition toward Christ, is the, the domain of darkness has been broken. The works of the devil were destroyed, even as Jesus hung on the cross in the life of that believer, that thief who believed on Christ. And that's what happened when you were saved. You know, Robert Candlish said, we know it experientially. Now looking back and interpreting, I know it. I, I didn't understand it, but now I know it. When I was saved at 17, there was a new person, a new creation in Christ. And I didn't understand it in these terms, but what happened was, is I came out of death into life, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And there was a radical change that took place. Salvation is about change. Our relationship to God has changed. We have fellowship with him. We've been reconciled to him through the blood of Christ. We've been justified. And now we have peace with God. We go from unbelief to faith in Christ. We go from Jesus as our judge to Jesus as our advocate and our righteousness. There's a change of relationships that takes place. And John focuses on that. We are ones who once were in the words of Titus, Paul in Titus 3, verse 3, you once were hateful, hating one another. And he says, you know what? You know that you know him because now you love the brethren. And there's a change. Now you have fellowship with those who have been redeemed by the grace of God. That relationship has changed. Your relationship with the world has changed if you're a justified believer. You once were of the world and you walked according to the course of this world, Ephesians 2 verse 2. You lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, you love the world, the things in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. You were characterized by the boastful pride of life. And in salvation, there's a change. And now there's a holy hatred of those things. Now, again, it's progressive and you're growing as you understand the will of God and the work of the Spirit in you to sanctify you. But now you're those who overcome the world. 1 John 5 verse 4. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Our relationship to the devil has changed. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. But now for the believer, it says, you have overcome the evil one, 1 John 2, verse 13. We're no longer children of the devil, but children of God. And that is manifested by you no longer practice sin, for sin is lawlessness. But you're a new creature in Christ, born again of the Spirit. And therefore, you're not characterized by practicing sin, which is lawlessness. No, you're characterized by one who loves and delights in the law of God. Yes, is there a battle? That's another sermon. Of course there's a battle. 
Glorification hasn't taken place. And so there is a battle. But there's a change of my relationship to the world, to the devil, and to sin. I'm no longer a slave of sin. I no longer live a life of lawlessness. And this is what happens in regeneration. This is how the doctrines of grace, and in particular when we think about the work of regeneration, irresistible grace, effectual calling, being born again, made alive in Christ, if all that doesn't just bring to your mind the import of Scripture, dig into Scripture. Because that impacts how you live today. Because before that, you were able to sin and able to not sin. Unable, wait a minute, let me make sure I got that right. Able to sin and able not to sin. Yes, unable not to sin. You could only sin. <laughs> Augustine said this, and I've forgotten the exact things because they're tongue twisters. But the reborn, regenerated person is able to sin. I still have remaining corruption, but I'm able not to sin by the grace of God. Some believers who don't know that you have been changed and your relationship to sin has been changed. You are no longer characterized by lawlessness. You're no longer of the devil in the domain of darkness in a state of spiritual death, but a state of spiritual life. Don't understand that you're able not to sin. Now, I don't want to oversimplify biblical counseling because the scriptures give much counsel to when we're wrestling with sin. But sometimes the counsel needs to be this. You say, Pastor, I keep committing this sin over and over and over. And I seem to be enslaved to it. Here's the counsel. Do you not know that you've been set free from the power of sin? That the Spirit indwells you and you by the grace of God can repent of that sin, that you by the grace of God do not have to be a slave of that sin? Do you not know that sin is no longer your master, that the devil is no longer your master, that you're not in the domain of darkness? And do you know that when that sin comes by the grace of God, you can say no and put it off and flee from it and obey God? You can. And the reason why you don't, now we need to get to that. There could be a whole host of reasons why you're not. But if you don't understand the principle that you as a regenerated believer in Christ are now a slave of Christ, set free from the power of sin, then you will continue to walk in it. And John simply puts it this way. It's so delineated. It's so clear. You're no longer of the devil. That he who practices sin is of the devil. If you're practicing sin, then it's evident that you must be of the devil, that you're still in that state of lawlessness. And so he says, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. If you've been born of him, him you can't live in that state of lawlessness anymore. The work of the Son and the work of the Spirit 
has set you free. Sin and the devil are defeated. Their final demise awaits a future date. Therefore, there's a battle. But God has done a mighty work. Not just in justification, but he is doing a mighty work now in your sanctification. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you are able not to sin. So you need to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. What salvation? Justification? No. Glorification? That would be foolish to think you're going to make that happen. You need to work out your sanctification in fear and trembling because God is at work in you. The grace, the power of God. And the reason why you want to grow in sanctification and pursue holiness is because God is at work in you. The, way, the reason why you can and have the ability now is because God is at work in you. The desire, the ability come from God. All glory goes to God. What does this do? It produces humility. God gives grace to the humble. And we, it creates worship. And they're all tied together. Oh, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Let my whole life be worship. But you see the Arminian view? It says faith is really rooted in man's ability. It's not the gift of God. And man, therefore, having believed of his own volition, has to keep himself saved. And therefore, he's trusting his ability. I'm trusting in the Son of God who destroyed the works of the devil. And I say, God, would you bear that fruit in my life as I walk with you by grace so that the works of the devil are destroyed in my life by progressive sanctification to the praise of the glory of your grace. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, there's so many things in one sermon never, never seems to be enough. But Lord, I pray that in this time you might have stirred up the hearts of your people to, Lord, see the whole counsel of God, 1 John, 1 John 3, 4 to 10. Lord, to consider your work, your saving work in justification, sanctification, and glorification. And Lord, where we are and live day to day is so much toward our sanctification. Yes, we look back and we can't be sanctified without looking back to what you have done in our justification. We can't be sanctified without looking forward to what you will do and hoping in and looking forward to that day of glorification. But Father, I pray, may we as your people know what you have done by your grace to set us free from the power of sin, that we might be sanctified. And again, that it would all be not to us, not to our praise or glory, for we are sinners still, but to the praise of the glory of your grace. Thank you for your work in us. Thank you for the Son and what he has done, not only for our justification, what he will do in our glorification, but what he is doing in our sanctification. And thank you for the Spirit's work, not only in causing us to be born again, but causing us to be sanctified and at work in us to complete what you've started.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.